Get ready for the Very Visible Business Podcast with David Avrin. Each week featuring a candid and raucous conversation with some of the most innovative, outspoken, and entrepreneurial business minds in the world today. This is the Very Visible Business Podcast, and here's David Avrin. And welcome to the Very Visible Business Podcast. My name is David Avern. You know, each week we talk to some really outstanding leaders and thought leaders and authors and business owners and business leaders as well about how visibility helps to drive business, to drive everything for them, engagement, support, donations, business, clients, and everything else. And uh, we appreciate you joining us here for the call today. Today I am thrilled because I am joined by one of my favorite people on the planet, uh, a good friend of mine. Actually, we, we were connected initially through our involvement with Vistage, which is the world's largest CEO organization, Dr. Doug Jackson with Project Cure. Doug, thanks for being with us here today. Hey, thanks for having me, pal. This you is- know, absolutely. Be- before we do, I'm going to, I'm going to, you're a very humble guy, but I'm going to gush about you myself. And then, uh, and then we can get into deeper about, about leadership style, the things that you do to engender support for really this unbelievable international organization. And I've had a chance to sort of understand what you do from the inside, watch it grow a warehouse, Costco size warehouses across the country that collect donated medical supplies, excess medical supplies. But we're going to, before we do that, quick introduction for you are, uh, Dr. Doug Jackson serves as the president and CEO of Project Cure each week. Project Cure delivers approximately four semi-truck loads of donated medical supplies and equipment to desperately needy people around the world. Since 1987, Project Cure has delivered equipment and supplies to hospitals and clinics in over 135 countries. Recently named by Forbes as one of the top 20 charities in America, in addition to delivering approximately 200 40-foot containers, these are the the semi-truck loads of, of medical supplies, over 200 um, each year through the Cure Cargo Program, Cure Clinics send teams of medical professionals to assist partner hospitals and clinics. Um, more than 20,000, this is, this is the part that is so fascinating, I want to get in deeper with you about this, Doug, is more than 20,000 people volunteer with Project Cure every year, making the organization one of the most efficient and effective grassroots organizations in the country. Now, a little bit more about, about Dr. Doug Jackson, not only a PhD, but also a JD, um, more education than most people should ever have as an attorney and a PhD. He's taught at the university level in the disciplines of finance, investment, leadership development, legal and international issues, frequent speaker and lecturer, colleges, universities, conferences, TEDx, of course, um, civic organizations. Now, listen, I've got, and I'm not going to get into here, five pages of credentials for other people that's you know some level of of puffery for you it's humility because it could probably go 10 pages or beyond um you know in your words give our listeners and our viewers a sense of what project is uh, project cure is what it is you do across the country and around the world well first let me say thanks for having me on i'm really proud of you and excited for this whole new uh, venture that you're doing here. I'm, as you know, a huge fan of your books and what you do when we've had such a great opportunity to, uh, you know, to mentor and coach and all of the things that, that, that you have done. And so this is a cool new venture. And I'm, I, I appreciate that. Let's talk about you. Tell me about Project Cure. And tell, well, tell everybody else because I'm certainly int, uh, intimately involved with what you do. And there are, as we said, 20,000 volunteers every month. But for those who have yet to be initiated, tell us about Project Cure. So we have become the world's largest 
provider of donated medical supplies and equipment to people who live in developing countries. Uh, we got started in my mom and dad's garage in 1987. Uh, they live in a little town just west of Denver called Evergreen. And my dad had been doing some economic consulting. He was a very successful real estate developer and was in Brazil and ran across the clinic that had nothing in it. And that was really the impetus for my folks to, to get this whole thing started. I was off doing my thing with, you know, law and my PhD and all of that, thinking I was going to go to, to Wall Street. And I told my dad I would help him. Uh, at the time, I think we had around a dozen or so volunteers. We had a small warehouse on the kind of that Santa Fe corridor, if you're familiar with Denver, down there by Evans next to a strip club. <laughs> and, um, that was, you know, that was the, the marker. Hey, do you know where the flower shop is now? Do you know where the strip club is? Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> right. I've never been there, but I know where it is, right? And that was where we got we left at the strip club, and uh, and and that's where our warehouse. That's awesome. Exactly. So anyway, so we got going there, and that's when I started helping my dad. And you know, frankly, the first grant that we thought that we had was uh, seventy-five grand. It was going to pay my friend Dave and my friend Doreen and Doug, the three D crew, and we were going to come in here and work for six months, and and then the money was going to run out, right? And so, what do you do? Anyway, that's 21 years, and we now uh, have warehouses in Denver. That's our headquarters, Nashville, Phoenix, Houston, Chicago, uh, just somewhere between Philadelphia and Wilmington down there. Um, and we're looking to put in, you know, my vision would be another 19 more of these warehouses in the largest medical centers in the United States. Now, now let me clarify this because – I want people to get a real sense of the size and scale and scope of the work that you do. Now, when you say warehouses, these are essentially, and correct me if, if any of this is wrong, they're basically the size of a Costco, stacked to the ceiling, very well organized, um, racks going to the ceiling, and, and you clear these out, you turn the entire inventory, what, three, four times a year, yeah, yeah. I mean, it really depends on what it is. You know, if it's a heart-lung machine, we ship that out once a year. But if it's things like gauze and gloves and needles and syringes and sutures and things like that, I mean, the minute they come in, they go out because there's such a demand for all of that product. Yeah. Right. The need is ever. Now, here's the part that I didn't know, and I think most people don't understand, is where do you get these? How do you get excess gauze? And the reality is, and, and my background was in healthcare public relations. So right. 30 years ago, I worked at Denver General Hospital, Children's Hospital. And when they, uh, when a surgery is scheduled, they provision a certain amount of supplies and those are pulled off the racks and anything right. that's not used, it is not put back, is it? Right. Yeah, this is all brand new stuff. And that's, you know, we can, we can talk about this whole expiration date issue because that's gotten to be a little bit of an issue for us doing the work we do. But we're going out to hospitals, we're going to manufacturers, we're going to wholesale suppliers. And basically, uh, you know, we, we, on behalf of all of these people that we meet all over the world, just say, here's the story. This person is not going to make it today unless you help. And the cool thing is, is that the people in the hospitals and, and these uh, medical wholesale companies are very generous people. Right. They don't. This is, this is material they used to throw away, right? So well, now sometimes, but sometimes it's brand new stuff, right? Right. Medline, for example, uh, out of Chicago, Mundelein, Chicago, has become a very good partner here. So when we were in the middle of the Ebola crisis, Medline gave us 350,000 pairs of gloves. That's unbelievable. unbelievable. And it was right. just, right, I mean, brand new stuff, right? Right out of the factory. 
So, and, and part of the name and the visibility and the credibility and the gravitas of an organization like Project Cure right. makes you sort of that recipient or at least a conduit of choice, right? You, right. your fundraising and everything is about filling up these 40 foot shipping containers. Now those, those right. are sort of come in vogue because people are using those for housing and things like that. Oh, right. Right. But those are things that are shipped across the country. It's the size right. of, a, of a semi truck. Yeah, it's a semi truck. Right, and those are filled with medical supplies that your team goes around, they pick up every week from all the hospitals, they come into the, right. into the, uh, uh, the warehouses. Right. But, but then you have volunteers who come in and sort all of that. I mean, I want to talk about, about your work with these international governments and right. how they bring you in in the assessment. But first, let's talk about what happens when those supplies come in to the warehouses across the country for Project Cure. So here's an interesting thought for us to think about. Usually, we think about our, our, our greatest weakness is our biggest weakness, right? There are times when your greatest weakness becomes your greatest strength. The fact is, my dad was not a medical doctor. I am not a medical doctor. Um, and so what we ended up having to do was to create an organization around the people who knew how to do what they do, right? So you take a lot of organizations and, and you know, they use volunteers, but the reason they use volunteers is because uh, these are all the things that they don't want to do. Right. I had to create an organization around a clientele, if you will, that looks a lot like nurses and doctors in the United States because those are the people who wanted to take the skills that they had and reach across the ocean. And so we built a vehicle for that to happen. So all of our systems are created around how do you make it effective for a nurse or a doctor? If you can do it for them, then we can do it for lawyers and bankers and Rotarians and high school kids and stuff like that. But how do you do that so that instead of bolting on the, the volunteers as an afterthought, we create the whole train that really is about the volunteers and the staff is here to serve the volunteers, not the other way around. Right. Fundamental distinction, and it, it, it pervades everything we know. And I, I will tell you that when I hire somebody, I only have 35 employees and 25,000 volunteers, right? When I hire somebody and they come to me and they say, oh, well, I'm just completely overwhelmed, I'm swamped, I'm whatever. Uh, my first question is, where's your, where's your team? Right. Probably haven't gone to engage the people that you've needed to engage, the volunteers. And so, yeah, you're burned out. And you think that the answer is, hey, let's hire a bunch of people. Problem, and this gets us into a whole other conversation. But, you know, Daniel Pink talked about this in his book, Drive. And we have created a society where we think that if you want somebody to dance just a little bit higher, jump just a little bit farther. All you got to do is dangle a couple of thousand dollars in front of them. And these people just act like Pinocchio and Geppetto. And it doesn't work that way. We're all a lot more sophisticated than that, first of all. Second of all, we live in a country where we probably have everything we really need. And so the marginal motivation factor of another $5,000, especially when the government's going to take half of it, divide that out. It's like, wait, you want me to do what for 150 bucks a month? No. Right. Interested. Well, listen, but you and I have talked before about sort of that concept of the contagious company. How do you create a culture that people are eager to come and work for? I mean, we, we've talked before about, you know, do you have that kind of a, of a culture that if you weren't able to pay your people, would they show up for work the next day? And of course, in most cases, of course, the answer is no, because we have to support our families. Sure. <clears throat> these are people, their most precious commodity is their time, right? Because these right. are people who do have real jobs. In, right. by and large, correct? And right. so they're coming in on their time right. and 
they are sorting materials, they're packing um, medical supplies, they're packing shipments, right. and, and even teams that are going overseas as well. Talk to me a little bit about how do you, how do you gain that kind of visibility to attract the right people, and what role do they play in your organization? The, well, volunteer, are, the volunteers specifically. Well, these volunteers are central. I mean, that is, that is the, the key thing that makes us different than anybody else is because everybody else, like I said before, they sort of attach the volunteers as an afterthought. We built the train around the volunteer, and that's a huge fundamental difference. And, and then I think that, the, you know, the second thing, Dave, is this, this whole Simon Sinek notion of, of start with why. And there's people who get motivated by passion and purpose. And I would say this, that, you know, I, I interact a lot with the, the for-profit sector. I mean, that's my background. That's my training, PhD in finance. I understand that stuff. If I see a company that's struggling like that, the problem is usually starting at the C-level on down, they haven't answered the question of why are you showing up today, right? right. Beyond their specific task and what's expected of them, right. what's, what's the overall Right. A friend of mine who's in real estate the other day, and we were talking, and and this person was about ready to quit the industry and, and was just complaining about the fact that all I'm ever doing is I'm just arguing between people who are rich and they're fighting over a $500 water heater and everything. And we had this conversation, but why, why do you really want to do this? I mean, what if it wasn't about selling a house? What if it was about providing somebody a place where they have uh, the most intimate moments of their life? This is where you bring your babies home. This is where you send your kid off to school the first time. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to provide you the stage for you to play out the best moments of your life. It's not really about the house. It's about the place. And then sign a mission and a statement, an agreement. No realtor does this. Sign an agreement that this is where our true north is. So if we get in a fight over the water heater, I'm going to bring you back here to say, is this worth fighting about the stage where you have the best moments of your life? This is the goal, right? This is the mission. Do you think that you could get excited and out of bed every morning if you took a family and you said, here is where you're going to spend the rest of, of, of the best days of your life is right here at this house. Is that a mission worthy of, of your life? And it's like, well, yeah, that one is. Fighting with some other real estate agent or fighting with the lawyers is not. Well, that's the ticket to get to the mission, right? Right. What happens in my world is I end up being the chief storytelling officer. And what I mean by that is, I come back with the stories of um, the, the, the people where we work, the people who need the help, the people who we have helped. Uh, we gather those up. We put those out. You know, we've got a very active social media site where we take pictures of these folks. I do a lot of speaking, but it's always around the story. Tell me the story about the guy in Beirut. Tell me the story about the kid in Cambodia. Tell me a story about the the, the little guy in, in Mexico where we just provided him a wheelchair for the first time, right? How did you make a difference to that, that kid? And every one of these volunteers who walks into this warehouse has to know that at the end of their two-hour shift or their day-long drive in the truck, that they changed somebody's life in a place where that guy didn't have a second chance. There's no mulligan. There's no do-over. There's no safety net. There's nothing. And you just fix somebody's life. Right. You know, there's an old adage that talks about that we, we make decisions emotionally, but we justify them intellectually. And I think this Absolutely. speaks to that entirely. And a lot of people don't quite, it, it, it's not dismissing as saying, oh, we're making an emotional decision. No, we decide to do things, whether it's a purchase or a contract or a volunteer, right. we're committing our time or resources because we want to. 
Right. Right. It's because we want to. Now we'll justify saying, well, it makes sense because I've got this much time. It's the same thing that you purchase, right? You're you're going to purchase that, that 60 inch flat screen because you want it. You're going to justify by saying, but look at it's $400 less than it was six months ago. Right. Right. And so, but, but you do all this entertaining and right. 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 But your people, your your retention, your retention is extraordinary. People are there. They, they get it. They're drinking the Kool-Aid. How do you get them, how do you reaching the people for the first time who may be hearing about you for the first time and engage them to, because, you know, we always say in business, our, our goal is to get, get that one client, that one contract, that one prospect one time, yeah. right? And then it's a retention issue, right? But it's, I, I helped open a chain of Brazilian steakhouses for a client some years back. Right. And I always right. told them I can bring you one customer one time. Right. The minute they're in the door, I'm done. Better live up to it. So I think there's a, a reasonable understanding of, of why your retention is where it is. It's really meaningful work and you see a tangible yeah. result. Talk to me about the first time, getting that person in the door. And then, and then I also want to talk about from a funding perspective because you've right. got some very specific audiences, right? You've got the international audience in terms of the recipient, the final recipient, and you're, you're nurturing relationships with foreign leaders, which is really extraordinary right. as well. You've got the volunteers internally who you're trying to get right. for free, but then you also have the support community, um, right. financial and otherwise. So right. talk to me a little bit about each one of them. How do you engage them for the first time um, to bring them in the door? And how, and how do you foster that visibility that, um, that, ultimately results in that initial engagement? Well, I mean, everything in life at the end of the day, it's all about your credibility. I mean, that's, that's do we at Project Cure do what we say we're going to do? Because if those volunteers come in here and they have a lousy experience, if they come in here and they find out that, hey, we're not really doing what we said we're going to do, we're just going to go dump this stuff offshore or whatever, uh, coming back. Those volunteers end up being our best word of mouth back to somebody else. And so, uh, you know, I've got a team of folks really working on, did we maximize the volunteer experience? And you mean in terms of creating a, a team of, or an army of ambassadors? Yeah, absolutely. Did you have a great time? Was it well organized? Did the people treat you well? Do you want to come back again? And, you know, the fact is, is that they may go back to feed my starving children, or they might go down and work at the rescue mission on Thanksgiving or something. Right. All very worthy causes, of course. Very worthy causes. And the cool thing is, is if they had a great time at my shop, they're going to help somebody else too, right? That raising tide floats all ships. That, that's really what that's all about. And what I want them to do is to have the very, very, very best time in giving of themselves, because I know that if they do, they'll do it again probably come back here, but man, if they go to work at Habitat and provide somebody a house, awesome. And I hope that everybody else in the, in this, you know, volunteer uh, environment is feeling the same way because I know that if Habitat's doing a really great job, some of those guys are going to say, you know what, the house building thing was cool, but let's try Project Cure today. And, and so, you know, we, we learn from each other. We, we work from e- to each other. And I do, I do a lot of, you know, going out and talking to Rotary Clubs. Um, we try to send this stuff out on social media. We work with other groups. Uh, we did a fun concert with Breckenridge Brewery and iHeartRadio a couple of years ago with Nathaniel Rateliff. We had 5,000 people show up to hear this guy, and it was all about Project Cure. Right. Ambassador boards in each of our cities. We've got young professional boards where we're taking these, you know, bright young men and women from 25 to 35 and saying, we're going to teach you how to be a really great board member. Maybe at Project Cure, you might go off and work at Boys and Girls Club. Awesome. But for this two-year commitment, we're going to show you how to be the very best board member you can. And then you're going to take this message 
out to the other community. Even with all that though, David, I'll tell you what, I just was in Nashville this last week and we did a really fun, uh, we did a songwriters night. So all the guys who- I saw, I saw it on social media. It looked like the, the turnout was unbelievable. Uh, we had 150 people on our very first event. I mean, the room was packed. We could have probably had 300, but we just didn't have any more space. These guys were a hoot. One guy would sing one song, go down, the next guy sings the next song, next guy sings the next song, next night. And then they start over, you know, and, and the stuff was, you know, they wrote songs for Brooks and Dunn and all this kind of stuff. And Zach Brown and all this, you know, and I'm sitting there listening. Oh, I know that song. I know that song. Right. But in terms of engagement, here, here's the part that I really like. Yeah. And, and I've watched you over the years as well. And you, you sort of alluded to that with your young professionals board. But it's more than just a board. It, it's almost like they're, they're ambassadors as well. And I've been to some of the events. It's great, great cocktail parties or events at, at some of the local, you know, higher end restaurants. Right. That, you, that they're taking that message and recruiting others as well. Because let's talk a little bit about, about sustainability, because I think this part is huge. And I want to make sure that we reserve a little bit of time to talk about the work that you're actually doing in some of the other countries. But I think for our business audience, I think the part that's really um, uh, relevant and, and applicable is this whole, this whole idea of you created this incredible monster that you have to feed. Now, of course, it's a wonderful monster doing amazing work. And you talk sure. about the work that your dad did as the founder when you had a couple of dozen volunteers, when yeah, you get 20,000 and you're in cities right. across the country, loading right. up trailers, loading up warehouses. Right. How do you, as the leader of an organization, strategize the, the visibility required for sustainability? Because now you have all of these um, facilities that have to be paid for every year. Right. The fundraising has got to be ongoing and relentless. Yeah. Uh, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you communicate that? And how do you keep yourself from, from burning out on that? Because well, it's a double-edged sword of building an organization that big. You got to feed that monster too. That's true. That's true. And, you know, warehouse rents and, you know, payroll. And every time a truck rolls out of here, we know it costs us around 20 grand for one of those big semi-truck trailers, it's worth it because what's inside of there is $400,000. So every time we raise a dollar, we ship, you know, 20. Uh, and part of it goes back to my dad's philosophy, you know, being a Scotch Irishman, he was the guy that said, hey dad, could I have 20 bucks? He'd say, 10 bucks, what do you want five bucks for? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. right. But, you're, but you're right. So, so the, 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 some of the labor, of course, is donated, the, right. um, the, the materials within the trailer, uh, right. that container, but it's 20 grand it costs to get yeah. it out the door and right. get where it's going. So talk about your work in spreading that and how do you plan for that and strategize? So I've, I've got a, an, an ACE person in charge of all of our communication, Jan Mazzotti. She's out there working all the time in every city. Then we've got a, a, an executive director who is in the community all the time. And their job is just to get to the places where the people are that have the resources that will move this forward. Uh, there's a, a woman here on staff and, and she runs all of our ambassador boards uh, and, and make sure that we get the right people there. They get the right message. And she's working hand in hand with the executive directors in the different communities that we've got. Um, and then at the end of the day, really, it's about us telling the story and saying, look, out of that $20,000, maybe there's a corporation like a Newmont Mining who is, they're doing their work, but they got huge heart. And they show up in a place like in Suriname and the medical system's not working. And they step up and say, yeah, as our corporate social responsibility, we're going to do something about that. We go to uh, fellow NGOs, you know, nonprofit organizations like ADRA, 
or somebody like that, Islamic Relief, and we say, hey, can we figure out a way to do a project together? Your people on the ground, and Project Cures Resources, and so we're fixing this horrendous healthcare system together. We do right. something with the United States Department of Defense, believe it or not, where young Marines, uh, Navy people are delivering stuff into Panama, for example. Right. And they're making part, part of it is, is the structure supporting the vision, isn't it? You can, there, there's a lot of people have great ideas about the things that they want to do. Right. We're going to do this. You got to have structure in place to make that happen. You got to right. have the people responsible. You have to have a level of responsibility on the local level and everything else. Let's talk right. real quickly in the time that we have about who you're working with overseas, because this is the part that is logistically um, fascinating to me. And it's not just somebody saying, hey, we're going to ship containers. They literally make a request from the governments um, or other organizations within these countries. And then right. you send a team out to do an actual assessment to make sure right. that what they're getting is used. Tell me about how that works. Right. Well, we, we've never just pushed our way into some place. I mean, there's organizations, for example, after Haiti, hey, there's a lot of money in Haiti. Let's go. That We've never been there before. We don't have any idea what we're doing. Uh, we're going to show up, you know, and they're looking to buy water. And it's like, guys, there's no water. There's earthquake here, right? And they just mess everything up. We've never done that. We've, we've waited until somebody invites us and says, would you come in? So, for example, Bangladesh, we've never worked there. It's a very needy country, but I've never had anybody call up and say, hey, would you come? So we really wait until somebody asks. And it could be a rotary club. It could be a church. It could be the government themselves, like in the case of Cuba, for example. I don't know doesn't really matter who's doing the asking. And sometimes I, I can tell you, and this is probably drive you crazy as a marketing guy, I'm not sure where they heard about us. Why? Right. right? It's like, mm, where did you find it? Well, we found right. you. We, we talk about public relations and marketing as conspicuous in its absence. Right. right. You yep. can't always trace it back, but you certainly know where you would be had it not been for the stories that are being told and That's speaking true. engagements and everything else, right? right. So then we get there and we spend about three or four hours. We sit down with the doctors and nurses at a big table uh, or in an office or something. So you're, so you're sending a team to actually like, do the assessment. Like just one me. person. Okay. Or we got about 35, 40 volunteers. And usually we send maybe one, maybe two people at, at the most, right? Because we're trying to do this cost effective. And, uh, you know, you'll fly 14, 15 hours, drive another six hours in a car. You show up at this hospital and, uh, you know, I can't guarantee you got running water, but you sit down and you go, it honors them to come see what they're, what you're doing. Yep. I don't know any way. I always tell my team, the food never gets better after it leaves the kitchen. And so our, our first strike at this thing is, is we got to know what they need. We have to know what they need. And so we go there in person. Uh, someday I'm going to get this t-shirt that says, you can't Skype this stuff. Right. Yeah, you that's, a very, that's a very good point because right? it's not only a more effective communication, but it is a matter of respect. You know, I, I talk a lot about customer experience, but the customer has a role in that experience, in that exchange as well. Sure they do. So for them to know that you're there face to face, not only right. do you avoid any of the, the problems in the communication issue, right. because right. it's a big cost, right? And, and right. you're getting funding and they're maybe funding part of that. Right. But you got to get it right. Right. That's exactly right. And then based on that, it's about 18 pages of questions. And we go through every room in the hospital, ask them all about each piece of equipment and all the supplies and all that stuff. We come back and we match that list up against the stuff we have in the warehouse. And then they get one more cut at it. We take that list, we send it back and say, this is what we propose to send to you. And if you don't want it, 
tell us no now and not when it gets over. Right. And so you're not wasting that as well. Exactly. And right. that's, are that's, you sourcing from all of your warehouses across the country? You might be bringing stuff in or you try and do it a single location just in the, in the interest of efficiency. We try to do single location and really what drives it. We, we, in our shop, we talk about the fact we build our birthday cake from the candles down and a candle for us, these machine, it's a, uh, ultrasound, it's those, it's those two or three or four or five pieces that they really, really, really need on that load. And then we build the rest of the load around it. So you would have, you know, the gloves and the gauze and the IV tubing and maybe the circuit sets and the things to make the anesthesia machine work. That all goes in afterwards. And then we pack these containers by hand, not on a pallet. So there's no extra space in that thing. When we, when we do it right, it's like Tetris. Right. That's a, that's a great way to put it. And then who accompanies that on its journey and, and sees that it reaches the right people? And then, well, and then I want to spend a quick minute and talk about engaging with the leadership from that country right. as well. So, right, because everybody needs to get a little bit of credit for something. Right. Because, right, you know, it, what do they say? The behavior that's recognized and rewarded is the behavior that's repeated. And, <laughs> and they've got to feel good. And, you know, we know that in working with our own elected leaders as well, right? Right, right. Well, one of the things that we've discovered is bad things happen in warehouses. Right? So I would never like to ship to a warehouse. Sometimes we have to, but only because the load gets divided out between small clinics or something like that. And there's not one clinic that can take a whole container. Right. On our best day, which is about 95% of the time, we will deliver that container right to the door of the warehouse, and, uh, right to the door of the hospital. The hospital, yeah. And it's the doctors and the nurses who participated in the needs assessment who are coming out and they're actually unloading the boxes. I mean, we've got pictures of, of, you know, Catholic nurses in their, uh, you know, white outfits and their hats unloading boxes out of this semi-truck trailer, you know, and, and taking it into the hospital. That's a good day. Right. It's got to feel like, like Christmas for them. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be religiously and culturally sensitive, but it, you right. know, the, you're right. The metaphor is it's, it's Christmas for them, isn't it? Well, it is. And, and here's the other thing that peer pressure, right, is one of those things that keeps that doctor from taking that ultrasound and running off and starting a private clinic because the nurses all look at him and say, nah, nah, nah. the ultrasound's for the hospital. You can't take it out of here. Right. And because everybody, everybody knows what was there. Right. Right. So tell, tell, us a little bit, tell us a little bit about your work with the, um, um, which I think is a brilliant strategy uh, of working with the first ladies of some of these countries around the world. Well, yeah, the, the, the Mississauga in El Salvador, and then we did uh, a First Ladies event with Margarita Zavala from Mexico, and I think we've done about 15 of these. The most recent one was Esther Lumbu in Zambia, and these women are all people that we've kind of vetted on the front end that really, truly are doing great work in their country. They care about their people. It's not just, you know, where I like to shop on the Champs-Élysées, but... Right. They're seen as sort of the Ava Peron. <laughs> a little right? bit, yeah. A little bit and of that. Just, and you, we, bring them, you bring them to America. Right. And we do a big, a big lunch and we'll have, you know, 15, 18, 200, 100 people, 2000 people at this lunch. And we usually get an underwriter so that you come to the lunch and you don't pay for the, for the food and the stuff. Right. Which is kind of unheard of. And right. every dollar, and we're very unabashed about, look, the reason you're here today is to write a check to support the projects that the first lady's working on. Now, you know, the first lady transparency is key. And I mean, I even, even within the, the organization, I get the entire team together twice a year and we go through all of the financials. 
Everybody in this office knows exactly what we deposited this week and who the money came from. That transparent, because if you don't, everybody's kind of wondering about, mm, do I really trust you? Right. But when you do things right, right, then people want to talk about you. I mean, we always say sort of in this world today, they're going to talk about you anyway. Let's give them right. something positive to talk about. Because if it's negative, they will as well. And we hear enough about some of these 501c3, 501c6s, not-for-profits and others with dubious records in terms of, right. of dollars that are actually spent right. in the right way. When you do things the right way and you're very visible and transparent in doing so, right. people want to talk about you. And you do create an army of right. ambassadors. Well, and this starts internally, right? So I gave up a multi, multi, multi-million dollar career, at least I think I could have blown it on Wall Street. Yeah, you would have. PhD in finance and a corporate law background, I think I would have done okay in New York, Chicago, Vancouver, whatever. I gave that up to come do this. For me to shortchange that exchange by slacking and doing this halfway, it would be a, literally a waste of my life. And I'm not willing to make that trade. So if I'm going to give up all of that to do this, this has got to be right. And it's got to be effective and it has to have the most ROI possible. Otherwise, you're screwing around wasting your time. And that's the only thing that we all have at the end of the day is time. So where do you spend it? And I'm not going to spend it cutting corners and lying and cheating about stuff and telling people, oh, I'll take your money and do this. And then I go do something else with the money. That doesn't make any right. sense. Or the leadership, the leadership's driving Bentleys. It's like, right. really? Really? And then you're asking people for those, those minimal dollars. Well, here's the thing. Listen, um, Doug, the visibility of the work that you're doing around the world, the, the international reputation, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's almost, oh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's almost seems like, you know, overkill to say you're changing lives. You're more than that. I mean, it's saving amazing lives around the world. And I know you're humble about it and you're, you're, you're dedicated and, and, and efficient and proficient and everything else. But the work, as I've watched it as well, um, is not only profound and remarkable and impactful, but it's expanding. Yeah, thank and that's you. the part that is really exciting to watch as well. All right, listen, in the, in the quick minute that we have, we're going to do a speed round. All right. Okay. All right. Could be any kind of a Ready. animal, what would you be and why? No, I'm just kidding. Not that. Okay. <laughs> um, what, tell me really quickly, short answers, maybe one word or, or a few words. What's your biggest challenge in recruiting volunteers uh growth right just enough to to handle the every time you open a new warehouse you've got to have thousands more volunteers to handle okay because well, training right you got to train these people so oh, right whole another thing right yeah absolutely yep. biggest challenge in terms of recruiting donors you you were up against a, a slew of phenomenal international organizations within the healthcare field. You've got Doctors Without Borders. You've got Randy Robinson's Face the Challenge. You've got all of those things as well. What's your biggest challenge in saying they're all worthy causes, donate here? Complacency. Mm -hmm. People who just, uh, they get so wrapped up in, you know, what's for sale at Costco and um, they, they forget. I mean, less than 20% less than of people in America even have a passport. So to try to engage them about the plight of somebody living in the middle of Africa, eh, you know, we got problems here. Well, yeah, but not like that. And so to try to communicate that in a way that first engages them in charity at all, and then engages them in charity on a continent where probably they'll never go and they don't speak the language, that's eh, a little different conversation. And that's a pretty uphill challenge on, on how to market that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what's your secret sauce? 
do you think in, in, in generating the engagement that you have from the press, from international organizations, from all the slew of four pages of awards that you've won? What's, what's that secret sauce? I don't know that it's a secret, but we just, we do what we say we're going to do. That's, that's the number one thing on our, on our value chain. I just had a conversation this morning with some of our staff about guys, we blew it on that one. Let's go back there and fix that because we didn't do what we said we were going to do. Fix it. Right. And, and that's what we try to do. Got it. Okay. Worst part about your job. Oh boy. Yeah. I'm not a great manager. (laughs) So I I think others would disagree with that. Well, I don't know. I don't, there's the humility part. Well, we're, 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 we're learning. See, I thought you, I thought you were going to say, um, the, uh, the international travel. Well, I mean, same time, it's just not fun. And I don't know how to sitting in a seat for 15 hours from here to Beijing. I don't know how to make that fun. It's just not. And you and I, you and I have that in common. We're both tall. Um, I've done, I've only done 23 countries. How many countries have you, have you traveled to? It's over a hundred. Over a hundred. And you're heading to, where are you heading on Sunday? Mongolia. Mongolia. You know, yeah. there's, there's a good, you know, with connections, a good 36 hours, right? Yeah. It's, it's funny because I, I leave at noon on Sunday. I get in there at one o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. Yeah. The crazy thing is leaving, coming back. I leave and I land in Denver the same time, the same day that I came back. So if yeah. I could just keep going east instead of west, I could be 36 years old again. There you go. Best part of your job. Uh, the, the, the results, when I look at some community, some mom, some little kid, and, you know, they're walking today, they're alive today, they went home with their baby from the hospital, and that wasn't going to happen. I tell my team, I said, you know, a lot of people talk about moving the needle. We don't move it, we just take it and bend it completely in the opposite direction. And uh, right. I mean, there's nothing like that. That's amazing. Outstanding. Last question. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? That's a really great question. Um, I don't know. I've got people giving me advice all the time. Guys driving down the freeway, advising me which lane to stay in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The the unsolicited advice? Yeah. You know, my mom was an educator and she taught me to continue to learn. And that may be the best thing because I go in every day. I mean, this office, my house, everything's stacked with books. I like to read. I like to learn. I do the coaching. Uh, you know, and it's, and it's, uh, sometimes it makes everybody around you crazy because it feels like it's never good enough, but, um, it, it is, it's just, we need to keep evolving and learning and, and, uh, yeah. And don't quit. My dad had an uncle who lived to six months, this side of a hundred. And I asked him one time, I said, why don't you retire? And he said, we weren't built to retire. We were built to work. And the minute that you stop working, you don't have any more purpose here and you start to shut down. And the only reason that he didn't make it to 200 is because he fell and broke a hip. But other than that, he'd still be going because that guy had something to get out of bed for every day. He had a job till he was a hundred years old. Yep. Like, wow. The guy down here in Colorado that invented the Rockmont Western wear and the, you know, the pearl buttons and all that stuff, the cowboy shirts. Right. And eight. He went to work until he was 108. Don't give up. Right. And for those of you who, who are retired or semi-retired, Come work for me. <laughs> that's it. I would say, go, go find a, a Project Cure location. Speaking of which, Doug, tell everybody if they want to get involved, if they want to learn more about Project Cure, how do they, how do they look you up? So it's projectcure.org. And when it pops up, we are very red. And uh, 
just jump in there. There's a, there's, there's two options to get started, give and serve. And so they can donate medical supplies. You know, in Colorado, we, we, we're pretty active. You fall off your bike, you twist up your knee skiing or something. I, I tell people, if you don't think that this is grassroots, go to any garage sale on a Saturday and I'll bet you that there's a pair of crutches in the corner because that's just what we do. Uh, you know, 50 cents, buy the crutches, bring them down. If you got crutches, bring, that's, that's how grassroots we are. And so anybody can get involved in this, but it's projectcure.org and they can get on and they can look at, at the fundraising projects we're doing. They can look at the special events. We have the best parties ever. I just you do, you do because I've been, but here's the interesting dichotomy. We'll wrap this up is yeah. for what is you consider a grassroots organization. Give me the monetary value of the medical supplies that you're going to do in this calendar year that you're going to donate? We'll probably do between 80 and 90 million. 80 and 90 million in donated materials for right. a grassroots organization. How many cities are you, do you have facilities in right now? We're, we're in six, Denver, Phoenix, Nashville, Houston, Chicago, and Philly. Uh, and those are the big ones. And then we got little collection centers in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and in Sarasota, Florida, and Ithaca, New York. And Yeah, phenomenal. Phenomenal. Hey, listen. Huge thrill to have you on the Very Visible Business Podcast show. We're, we're, we're talking leadership. We're talking engagement. And, and how do you bring people in who, right. uh, uh, for something bigger than themselves? And no better person to talk to than my friend. That Dr. right there. It's bigger than yourself. Find something in your life that's bigger than yourself and give yourself to it. Outstanding. Dr. Doug Jackson, thanks for being with us here. Hey, for everybody listening, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. There's other information to click. You can look us up on social media at The Very Visible Business everywhere. Once again, thanks to everybody. We will see you every week at this time or wherever time, whatever time you have, tune in to The Very Visible Business Podcast. I'm David Averitt. For past and future episodes, be sure to subscribe at TheVeryVisibleBusiness.com. You can also learn more about David Averin's keynote speaking and consulting at visibilityinternational.com. Connect with us on social media and check out David Averin's latest book, Visibility Marketing at amazon.com. This has been the Very Visible Business Podcast with David Averin. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.